are listening to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. Greetings, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. Here we are at lucky episode number 13, and time is sure flying by. Both Nick and I are having an absolute blast with the podcast, and we hope you are enjoying it as well. Um, Just a friendly reminder that if you are enjoying the content we're bringing, uh, please leave us a rating, comment, or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. This helps us climb into ratings and, more importantly, helps us pick up new listeners who are then introduced to our traditional approach to spending time in the outdoors. Also, if you have a question, comment, or a suggestion, please feel free to drop us an email at podcast at traditionaloutdoors.com. We would sure love to hear from you. Okay, so this week we have our good friend and one of our biggest supporters of the show, the one and only Jason Sam Kowiak of Traditional Bow Hunting and Wilderness Podcast. Jason is one of the pioneers when it comes to podcasting about traditional bow hunting, and he has a ton of other useful information related to the outdoors on his podcast. He was definitely an inspiration for Nick and I in starting uh, Traditional Outdoors, and we're excited to have him on the show. So let's get right to it. Hey, Jason. How's it going, buddy? Going pretty good. How are you guys doing? I'm doing well. Nick? I'm doing good, too. Excited to talk to our guest and and get all the knowledge we can. Same here. Same here. So, Jason, you're um, you're getting all fired up and geared up, heading out to uh, the Bearwood soon, right? Yep, leaving on Friday morning. That's what I was doing just before you called, was uh, was finishing packing and just backed my trailer up and getting everything loaded up. We're going to take a trailer this year because I got three guys in the truck with me, so no room to fit everything. So I'm going to put it all in a trailer, and uh, yep, so I was just getting everything ready as we speak. Now, where, where, whereabouts are you headed? Going up to, uh, it's north of Thunder Bay. It's up with uh, Bear Creek Outfitters. I've never actually been there. Uh, this hunt was set up by uh, Dan Rudman and his, you know, him and his son, Dan and Junior and Dan Sr. Uh, they did it two years ago, had an incredible time up there, and I've never been there. And when they were talking about doing it again this year, I said, hey, you know what, That's that'll be a blast. You're going to have a great time. And he, you know, said, hey, you should come with us. And so uh, so the only people I actually know on this trip out of 10 of us is going to be both Rudmans and I know know john my buddy john that i hunt with all the time he's coming too so um but sounds like a good group of people and i'm excited to meet him and get up there and hunt it and see what it's all about but never been there before so you're you're leaving on friday when will you actually get into uh camp and how many days are you hunting uh i will be it's i want to say we we leave friday morning and it's i think it's like 12 and a half or something hours up to Thunder Bay and we're going to go get a hotel. I already rented a hotel in Thunder Bay because we can't get into camp until noon on Saturday because there's other hunters there. So they get out, they leave Saturday morning. We can come in at noon. So we'll get a room Friday night in Thunder Bay. And then we got about a two hour left, left of the trip to into camp that we do um, Saturday morning. We get there at noon uh, and then we get all the paperwork done. He's going to show us our baits and that kind of stuff. And we're going to dive right into hunt because I only have... Uh, you get to hunt from Saturday to Saturday, but I have to leave Wednesday night uh, because I have to be back in Detroit Friday morning, and that's like 17 hours from there. So I got to leave. After we hunt Wednesday night, we're going to pull out, me and John are, and drive back so that I can be back for work and weddings and stuff like that. So I actually only get five days of hunting. Well, hopefully that'll be that. Hopefully that'll be enough. 
me too. That's what I'm thinking. I mean, I've, I've killed, I don't know, five, six, eight bears and I don't think I've ever, it's ever taken longer than five days to do it. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping, you know, but it's one of those things that in order to fit it in this week that, you know, cause I mean, they scheduled it a while ago. While I already had everything, I already had weddings booked. So it wasn't like I could tell a bride, Hey, can't come cause I'm doing, a, I'm doing a bear sure. hunt. <laughs> so it is what it is, but yeah, so five days is what I got. So we're going to plan on being on stand Saturday night, getting right into it and, uh, you know, making it happen, hopefully. And I'm not picky. I've already, I, I've killed, like I said, I, I, I've killed a, a P&Y bear. One in my living room is, he was 406 pounds. He was a monster. And uh, so, I mean, I'm not real picky. I mean, if it's a, if it's a good bear, it comes in, I'm, I'm, I can't wait to get it on the ground, get her skinned out, and I'll be eating those back straps that night. Well, I keep I keep saying I'm gonna go up there and, and hunt the the spring season. Um, I've I've never killed a bear. I've had a couple of close calls here in Georgia. Um, really, while while I was deer hunting, um, but Jerry Russell, a good friend of mine here, runs a camp uh, out of Canada every every spring. But it's just always the wrong time of the year with my daughter in school. So I'm thinking, you know, after after she gets out of high school next year and my wife recovers from the trauma of sending her off to college, maybe the following year I can I can try to get up there. But uh, would love to sit here and actually talk to you more about the bear hunting. So that may be a, a reason for, for bringing you back on here in the future. But we actually wanted to talk to you about, um, about your, your scouting DVDs. You just released... Um, the, I guess, part two or the second DVD set around, around scouting for, for whitetails. Yeah. Second one's out. Uh, it, what it is, it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of, like you said, it's almost like a part two. It's a continuation of the first one. This one, the first one, the whole concept behind it was I wanted to, you know, teach people anything I could when it came to how to scout, how to get into deer, how to make it happen. And, uh, and by doing so with that one, I, I thought I put everything I knew how to do in there and it was really good. And it was all about getting you into deer. And then after it was produced and made and out there, I started thinking, well, okay, that's good. But you know what, now we're, we're talking about traditional bow hunters. How can I show them the little, you know, tips and tricks that I'm realizing as I'm using them that I didn't put in there, maybe how to, you know, the right way to set up on a tree for how the animals are going to come in so that you maximize your shot opportunities, uh, how to hunt trees that aren't very good trees to be hunting in, how to narrow down and de determine, you know, if you got 10 trails coming through a funnel, how to know which trails are the ones you're going to use during daylight, you know, consistently uh, versus the ones that are going to be nighttime use, uh, you know, how to play the wind if you're going to hunt them in a specific spot, how to know that if you go to this spot is where your odds will be better because the wind is in favor so they're more most likely going to move during daylight earlier you know how to really just fine tune and narrow it down for a traditional bow hunter to get in 20 yards and make it happen you know it's the it's the little details that make that five to seven yards difference uh, a lot of right. times yeah, the, the first one was a whole bunch of information and it was good. I mean, I loved it. The first one's probably my favorite um, because it does, it really can take somebody who doesn't know a lot or somebody that knows a, quite a bit and still learn. There's a lot of great information in it. The first one was four hours long, double two DVD set. And it was really good. It covered a whole entire year of scouting for whatever time you wanted to be out there. So you knew how to get started. Uh, but then the second one, it's, uh, it's, it's more focused and concentrated and more like you said more detail oriented on on some of the things that matter most you know and i know uh both nick and i got the uh 
the second DVD set last week. Um, uh, and I, I, I can't speak, I'll let Nick jump in and speak for himself here, but I think he actually went back and, and started watching the old ones again to kind of refresh his memory before jumping into the, the second set. Not me. I just went ahead and popped them in and I've been trying to watch them, um, as I was, as I'm doing other things during the day and back and forth. And, um, I kind of like, I'm like you, uh, the, the, the first one I think is a much better as far as foundation. Um, and what I've seen of the second one is again, that it's, it's kind of tweaking what you, what you already know and the, the skills you've already put in place. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really liking the second set and I'm going to go back and watch the, the first set again later. What about you, Nick? Yeah. I've, I've heard you talk a lot in the last week, man. <laughs> but no, you're I, talking about Jason, not yeah, me, right? Not you. I, yeah, you're always talking, but yeah, Jason. Uh, so we were going. Uh, so what I've actually been doing is kind of jumping back and forth, and um, it actually worked pretty good that way too. Um, like I went back and I was watching the very first part of uh, the topo map reading and whatnot, and uh, identifying terrain. And then today I was watching um, all about the. Uh, the early season versus late season movement and the beginning, like kind of the beginning and middle of the first disc of the second set. And then uh, talking about bedding areas, which I really like the bedding areas part um, because that kind of plays with the topo map reading from the first DVD. So actually just jumping around, um, I had to go back the first time because I, I really couldn't, I couldn't remember everything. Um, Steve's been doing this a while. I'm just, I've kind of made it a point that I'm going to get better at scouting this year and I want to actually learn how to be a bow hunter this year. Um, and that's kind of my, my next chapter, if you will. So I've, I've really taken a lot of time and, and, you know, really kind of watch thing, kind of watch the DVDs slowly, you know, 20, 30 minutes at a time and just absorbing everything you're saying. Cause that first DVD, you give so much information, like there's so much information and, and it's so great for somebody who just starting out doing this like me. And the second one, it's almost like you're adding the the sprinkles on the cupcake, so to speak. You're just kind of like, okay, here's going to get you in the vicinity where you're going to see deer. Here's how you're going to actually kill deer. And I, I think they've been, they've been great so far. And uh, since I've learned so much from this, I wanted to ask you, what are some things that you have learned while you were working on the, on the DVDs? Like in general, first set, second set, like, have you learned anything new while doing it? Yeah, the first one brought me back. Um, it was kind of nice because when I was recording the first one, I, it, you know, I, I'd have, I go, okay, I want to talk about this, and it would make me think about it. Things that you overlook, you just take for granted or know in general. Uh, it brought it back into perspective for me and why it was so important and paying better attention. And uh, it saved me making that first DVD really kind of saved me myself from making a lot of the stupid mistakes that, again, you just, you take them for granted, you you know, and then you get up there and you're in a tree and then you have deer walk by you at 35 yards. You look at where they were and you're going, oh my, I, I know better than this. Come on, you know, that kind of thing. So the first one brought back a lot of the stuff for me. The second one was... Uh, was fun, but the second one actually was quite a, you know, ever since I made the first one, I, I made it, and then I was watching another video, and it was a, a, vid, a video actually on, on digital marketing, and it seemed like all the videos I was watching on digital marketing would explain to you why you should do it, and tell you a little bit about this, but nobody actually told you how to do the digital marketing very well, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I was like, this is kind of what it feels like with that first scouting video. I'm telling them how to hunt, I'm telling them where to hunt, I'm telling them what to look for, I'm telling them how to do this, but I'm not telling them how to 
know what day to go to what stand. I'm not telling them how to set up when they get to that stand. I'm not telling them why exactly the deer will move through here on this particular time and why, or during this particular part of the season and why. And I, so that was kind of the thing that made me think, all right. So I started for the second DVD uh, for the last probably, I don't know, I want to say probably four months, I have been consistently taking notes, but only taking notes when I'm in the field. So if I'm out there hunting or scouting uh, or anything I'm doing out there, I'm making mental notes of things that I want to make sure I put in that second DVD so I didn't forget anything. You know, when I was in Kansas out there and I was hunting and I'm running setups and stuff, I actually had a notepad in my pocket, would pull it out and say, remember to explain why in these kind of areas it's okay to hunt this tree, but this is the kind, you know, here's how you'll hunt it. It may be open, but here's how you can get away with this particular type of tree um you know that kind of thing and then uh you know, when I was down in Alabama was when I realized I got to tell people how to hunt, what side of the tree they should be setting up on and explain to them why. Because I made the mistake of setting up in the wrong, actually, I didn't make a mistake. The deer just did the exact opposite of what I expected <laughs> them to do. And <laughs> so, and when they did that though, I got shafted because of how I was positioned on a tree. As soon as that situation ended, which meant no arrow shot or anything, I pulled out that notepad and made a, made a note in there to make sure I explained how you want to set up on that tree for optimal shot opportunities and why. So uh, the second one was a big accumulation of a lot of stuff that I, I wished I put in the first one, knew after I made it that I didn't put it in there, kind of regretted not having it in there, and then just went through and made it again. I'm shocked that it ended up being another two-hour DVD, you know, I mean, a four-hour double-set DVD, but it just kind of, that's how it did. I, I I didn't cut out anything that I thought was important and, you know, just fought to get it in there, but I'm not going to lie, I still ended up cutting out about an hour, you know, just to get it to fit. So, Jason, one thing I have, I have learned over the years is without fail, if you set up a, a, if you set up in a tree or set up in a stand or set up in a blind, expecting the whitetails to come in on the, the perfect side to give you the, the best shot angle possible without fail. 80% of the time they're going to come in on the opposite side. Um, or at least that seems to be my luck. Uh, I will say what, what length bow do you, uh, do you shoot? A 60 inch. 60 inch. 60. So uh, I've up until really up until last year, I've typically hunted with 68 or 70 inch longbows. Um, and I've had a lot of situations. In fact, whenever I would go in and set up a stand, that was my, that was my first thought is, you know, which side of the, which side of the the tree or which side of the stand do I expect these deer to come from so that I can set up because I couldn't shoot. Um, I couldn't shoot to my left. I had to shoot turning to my right or straight ahead because if I tried to shoot to my left, the, the bow was just in the way of everything. And last year, I actually started shooting a 64-inch bow, and it eliminated that. So it, like, opened up a whole new world for me because I, I would get out and practice in the backyard and so forth and get to where I could actually shoot on either side um, with that shorter bow. And I'm really surprised at how much I, I'm enjoying shooting the shorter bows now because of that. Yeah, so what you're saying, four-inch shorter bow made a tremendous difference, and that scares me because the bow that I got coming in about a week or two from Steve is a 64-inch <laughs> ALS or ASL-style bow, so <laughs> now what you're telling me is I'm going to have a nightmare in a tree stand with my longer bow. <laughs> and see, the funny thing is it's actually only from a 68 to a 64 on each end, it's only two inches. 
Right. But that two inches makes a big difference, especially as far as like hitting the uh, hitting the seat on your stand or if you're using a, a climber, hitting the climber uh, section on the stand. It's amazing how much that, that two inches makes a huge difference. Do you cant your bow? I've seen you. I haven't seen you shoot, but I've seen a lot of you shooting like your arrows, but I've never actually seen you draw and shoot, I don't think. That that could lead us down a, a rabbit trail. Yes, I do. I do count the bow, um, but that's one of the things. And I don't honestly, Jason. I listen to so many different people talk about these topics. I I don't know where you where you where you sit on this, but I'm not a big. And it, look, if it works for if it works for you, great. If it doesn't, that's okay too. But the you know the the videos that you see constantly on social media, you know, how's my form and. And the shooting the clickers and then doing all this stuff. And I'm like, how, how do you equate that to hunting situations? Because I can't, I'm practicing in the backyard from an elevated stand and trying to mimic every possible situation I could get myself in shooting multiple angles, shooting, sitting down. I've actually practiced shooting on my knees on the platform just because I've had those situations happen. And you know, form is still important. I'm not saying proper form is not important. What I'm saying is, is a lot of times in hunting situations, I can't get that perfect stance and my shoulders set exactly right and all this stuff. So I can't the bow. I hold the straight up, the bow straight up. If I need to, I'm even, I've even shot before canning the opposite direction just so I could clear the limb. So uh, short answer to your question. Yes, I can't the bow, but I also practice shooting in every possible scenario uh, as much as I can, so there is no fixed position. Yeah, see, it doesn't it doesn't bother right. me at all um, length because I Steve will tell you I I can't quite a bit. I I've got a crazy I'm a I'm a see, I'm a long bow thug so to speak. My bow is almost <laughs> three o'clock two two three o'clock and I and I've gone from sixty to sixty eight and just. I even had a 70 at one point. I never really had a problem. Um, now, the reason why that happened is because I um, I hunt from a lot of ground blinds. And uh, I'm always clearing overhead limbs or I'm clearing or overhanging limbs or I'm always I'm clearing the ground or, or the, the blind in front of me. Um, the natural, usually from natural cover. So I, I kind of just adapted that. On the other hand, I've, I'm finding that I actually cast my fly rods on a sideways plane better. So I think there's just something wrong with me. Like I've got water in my ear or something and I have to go to one side. <laughs> well, one thing to think about, and I don't want to go back to Jason, Nick, but you, you say that, um, and you haven't spent a lot of time hunting in a tree stand. So what I will tell you is, it's going to it's that the way you can't the bow is definitely going to play a factor into how you how you hunt. Oh, I know it. I, I've already noticed that hunting from from elevation. Yep, and from when we spent our time on Cumberland. But yeah, it's I just yep. change. I I mean, I actually line up better bending at the waist and stuff just because of the natural way I shoot. But anyway, we we know that uh, now that we've established that Steve is anti form. We can get back to <laughs> how about you? So how about you, Jason? You kind of started that question. Well, I'm right there with Nick. I'm the same way. My bow's on a 45 degree. I can't mind 45 degrees pretty much. You know, I'm like, 
you know, I'd be right about two o'clock or 10 o'clock as well too on mine. Um, and, and it doesn't really affect me, but I don't, I do not shit or <laughs> I do not shoot <laughs> sitting down. <laughs> slip. <laughs> I, I actually do the other one. That was, down. A, that was a good slip there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but I don't shoot from a, you know, when I'm on the seat. So I, I'm always standing. The only time I ever sit down in a tree is if I need a 15 minute break. Otherwise I'll stand five straight hours, you know? Um, so I'm always, but I do camp my bow pretty much the same way, but I'm also have the same attitude that you do too, Steve. I, I don't care about form and my attitude form is for taxidermy. You know, Gene Wenzel or Barry said that once I heard him say it <laughs> 20 years ago. He said form is for taxidermy, you know, and, uh, um, and it makes perfect sense. But I mean, I, I do know a lot of guys that use the clickers and, you know, and that stuff. And even John uses like a kisser button to the eyebrow. Um, everybody's got their little techniques and it, it works. Um, but for me, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I, I've killed deer where I've only been able to draw three quarters because of the fact that I can't lean out anymore and I'm hitting my elbow or my limb does come in contact with the tree. So that's as far as I can draw it. It's all I got, you know? Right. Um, but so, I mean, being able to shoot different positions is, is definitely key. Uh, and being able to, you know, there's times with that canned bow that I'll have to straighten it up. If I got to swing, so I'm left-handed. So if I got to swing too far to my right, I need to straighten my bow up or I can't do it. And there's, I have no problem shooting it vertical either. I do practice that from a tree as well. So. And see, that's me, that's me to the left. So I know exactly where you're coming from. Yep. And it's also why I prefer, and actually one of the things I said in that in the second video, I prefer to not hunt trees that are that big. You know, I don't want those big, massive monster trees because I can't, I lose shooting on both sides of them. I show examples of that in the video, two different trees and what your shooting radius is and what you can get away with. So, I mean, I'll take that, uh, you know, that that 10 inch or 12 inch or even a, a 16 inch diameter tree all day long much or even an eight inch you know which i don't have a problem with but uh you know that kind of thing but once you start getting them when you start getting into those trees that are where you're maxing out your straps on your steps or your sticks those trees they they bug me i i don't like being in them because i do i i lose you know 20 degrees on each side if it's top limb or lower limb you know yeah next time you talk to tom jorgensen ask him about the, the how small the diameter tree i'll stick a tree stand in i'm still not living that one down uh yeah, steve, steve take. So, yeah I, I i kind of i play here's my here's my best advice for that if when you climb up the tree and you hang your stand once you stand in your platform if it bends all the way down and you hit the ground again it's probably too small of a no tree. then you just latch um, to another one that's equally small and the math of two four inches equals an eight done it <laughs> You're, and, and it really does. I have done it. The tricky part is getting your sticks to get up there, but I, I have done it. I have taken like a pile of saplings that were there and jammed them together and put a ladder stand on them and climbed up there and I just swayed like six feet in every direction, but it, it worked. Yeah, so whatever Tom tells you, don't believe it. Uh, <laughs> so, so Jason, back back to the subject at hand. Um so watching the DVDs, uh, obviously uh, the the terrain that you're primarily hunting is at best rolling. It it looks like it's pretty flat. You've mentioned that you you know you've hunted some in Alabama. I know you've hunted in um, uh, Missouri, right? Yeah, um, Missouri, Kansas are the two hill country places. Missouri, Kansas, and Ohio are the, the mainly the three hill areas I hunt. So are there are there any any terrain? Um, any specific type areas or, or terrain uh, specific areas that you would like to spend more time studying or, or getting better at predicting deer behavior? Or do you feel pretty confident that no matter what the terrain throws at you, you can come up with a plan? 
That's a, that's a tough one in the fact that uh, I do feel pretty good. And, and, you know, as far as being able to just figure out what deer are going to do from all these years and all this, you know, experience that you gain doing it, um, you know, I, I feel pretty good in pretty much all terrain. I, I don't think I've been to a place where I've had major problems making it happen or getting into deer, but the hill country stuff, I'm still learning. I, I have a pretty good knowledge of it. I got some pretty good sets of rules that I follow that have, have worked really good for me. Um, but my knowledge of the bigger picture of what they do has still kind of been a little bit evasive. Can I get into areas where they're going to travel through? Yes. Can I figure out why, when they're going to be there and why? Yes. Can I figure out why they're going from here to there and exactly what route they're going to take? I'm a little hit or miss still on some of that stuff. Now, swamp areas, big woods, I got that down to a science if it's flat. But like, interesting you say that here at home, we have flat areas and then we have rollers. I actually try to avoid the rollers here and stick to the flats because I know it best. I mean, I'll, I'll perp- if I look at an area and it's got a lot of rolling hills, I'll, you know, in here, rollers are, you know, maybe 50 feet, maybe 100 foot elevation change if we're lucky. Uh, so, but I still try to avoid those areas just because I don't want to take the time right now to learn them. Uh, you know, because I'm, I'm not sure how that will affect them because the other places I'm hunting are very steep draws, very nasty, you know, uh, military crests, cliffs, bluffs, uh, you know, pretty thick and, you know, pretty good hills to them. And so those, I, I know how to hunt. It's that in-between zone where it's just the rollers that I don't have any experience in. And see, I, so, uh, get, uh, Nick's, Nick's input here too. But for me, I, I, I hate trying to, uh, trying to plan and figure out if it's, if it's completely flat. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've hunted several years now in South Carolina and it's just, I mean, it swamps, but it's flat as a table. Um, and you know, other than looking at thick areas for bedding and then trying to figure out what exit path they're going to take, I mean, yeah, you can use the wind, but if you're trying to figure out you got to put every the, the whole picture together. Every component for me has to come together on flatland where uh, in in hill country or even in rolling, I can I can predict better just because of the terrain features, thermals and wind. I don't I have a harder time doing it on on flat ground. One thing that in hunting in Michigan now a couple of years the area we hunt and I'm assuming I keep saying I'm going to do some research on this and figure out if it's if my assumption is correct but I think it's probably from the glaciers years ago that that you know kind of came through Michigan melted and so forth but they the the bowls and the 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 draws that Michigan has it can be completely flat and you you'll have a bowl and the first time you look at it on a topo map you're trying to figure out is that a bowl or is it a hill and and hunting around the edges of those becomes they create a lot of really nice natural funnels is where I'm going to and and it got to where it was really easy for me to figure that out, um, but if it's completely flat, uh, yeah, I, I hate it. I, I just yeah. I have no confidence in 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 where I'm setting up. I guess is the best way to put it. Which means, and that's how it is here too. And those bulls, you're right, they're gold mines. And it doesn't matter if it's only 20 yards across or if it's, uh, you know, if it's 80 yards, but you're right, they'll work those, they'll run that, you know, just off the top of that, right around the edge of them. And they're fantastic spots. Uh, even some of my best places, it's pure wide open. Well, when I say wide open, I mean waist high grasses and bedding areas and stuff. But man, they'll, uh, if they come up where, you know, not a, not a roller, not a top of a hill, but if they, you know, you get 10 foot rise in elevation, 
foundation and then you get one of those bowls in there they'll they'll snug that inside edge of that thing and they're they're gold mine funnels but if it's pure flat like when I'm looking at topography or I'm looking at aerial photographs which is what I use mainly for flat, flat ground I don't use topos um but when I'm looking at those aerial photographs, I am looking for structure, just like a bass fisherman would. I am looking for structures and funnels and things that are going to move deer, things that are no-go areas where deer won't be, uh, places where other hunters are going to be, because it's, it's Michigan. Our pressure is huge. So if there's, you know, I mean, any basically any logging road, two-track, or power line, 100 yards to 150 yards on each side is going to be just a bait pile every, you know, you could take a power line and parallel it. On it, you know, if you walked into the woods 125 yards and then paralleled that road, you'd see a bait pile every 300 yards, you know, because that's where people do. There's a truck parked every 300 yards, <laughs> yep. you know. Um, so when you cut out these areas and you figure this out, then you can really start to narrow them down. But it's hard in the big, when you take just a big chunk of big wilderness timber. You have to really start to define the the, the subtle edges, you know, the uh, where the conifers, the, the heavy conifers meet the uh, poplars and then transition into oak and uh, how or how, you know, a natural, even if it's a clearing, just a natural area that's, you know, a little clearing that's, you know, 40 yards by 30 yards, but for some reason it's cleared out right there. That to me is a funnel piece. That's going to move deer one way or the other, you know, so you really got to hunt them down. It, it, it's a lot of work. Kansas, Missouri, okay, so easy. With that, and you know, I'm of course, you know, I'm applying pretty much your video to hunting Michigan mostly because that's where I hunt the most. But, um, and those bulls, as you were saying, but so that's understanding the nuances of the area and and just getting to know it. Um, as you said, you can only learn so much from the topo. You got to get boots on the ground and get in there. Now, your first DVD, you're talking about the ability to go in there and with the topo stuff that you taught and the different identifying the different terrain and where deer aren't going to be and where they where they are and where they want to be, you can figure out where to go in and kind of do it blind. In the second DVD, it's more about understanding what's there and identifying it to get close enough to kill, basically. So, um, how often would you say you go in blind versus actual scouting, like if you could put a ratio on it, I guess. I can, and it's going to blow your mind actually. Um, but I would say that in Michigan, 40%, 40, probably 40% of my hunts are blind and probably still even, I would say 20% of, or I would, I would say 40% of them are blind and probably I would say probably 50% of those blind ones are in the morning in the dark. Um, and then now when I'm where it really gets interesting is in Missouri and Kansas, I would venture to say that 80% of my spots I'm going in blind. And then I would all, and that clowns that I'm hunting a different spot each morning and each afternoon. So in Missouri or Kansas, what I do is I'm coming back, like even the first night I get there, if I didn't hunt yet, let's say I come back, I got camp set up. When I crawl into my sleeping bag, I pull out my phone. I start looking at topos and aerials that I, I downloaded and brought with me. And I'm looking and I'm picking a spot right there. And before I close my eyes and turn that light off, I'm going, okay, I know where I'm going to hunt in the morning. In the morning, I'm going in there in the dark, blind, setting up, hunting. And then when I, if I get down at noon, one, two, doesn't matter. I try to stretch the morning hunt out the longest. And then, uh, then I get down. Sometimes I'm moving a hundred yards. Sometimes I'm walking, hiking all the way out, getting in the truck and driving to a completely another spot, five miles away, going in blind. Now, when I hunt in the evening, 
If it's a great spot and I think it's got a lot of potential still for morning, then I may leave the stand and come back and hunt it uh, the next morning. But like I said, 80%, I mean, that's, you know, 80% of my stuff I'm doing out of state, I'm every hunt is blind. Okay, so do you use a GPS a lot for scouting or returning to locations you have scouted in the past? Like, do you use, or is it just Google Earth, Caltapo? I mean, you know, things like that. I use what three words a lot if I got phone service. So let's say that same scenario, say I walked in and found a spot, you know, I mean, uh, I, you know, when I'm sitting on my stand in the morning in a different state and I'm hunting, I'm also planning what I'm going to do for the afternoon. So I'm looking at some maps, things like that. Again, I got them downloaded where I can do it without having service on my phone and, uh, you know, without cell service, but I can still view the maps. So I'm figuring out where I want to go. Then I'll drop down, I'll head over there. Well, if I hang a stand and I hunt it and I'm going to come back to it in the morning, I'll use an app called What Three Words if I have cell service and it locks it in for me and gives a what three words. I text it right to myself and then I can go right back to it in the morning. So that way I can find my stand in the dark in a place I've never been. Uh, and then if I don't have cell service, then yes, I keep a GPS little Garmin E-Trex 20 in my, uh, in my pack. So for those situations, like a lot here uh, in northern Michigan where I'm at, there's a ton of places where I hunt that I have zero cell service. So I'm marking those spots on a gotcha. GPS. Gotcha. So are you, uh, are you spending, spending that time kind of midday and whatnot to craft routes and stuff too for your next hunt or getting back to your other one or maybe jotting it away for another day if you ever come back that, hey, this is a good way to get in there? Nope. I actually, well, the only time I actually care about the way in, uh, I never care about the way out unless I'm, I'm coming back to it in the morning. But usually, see, I mean, I, I'm, 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 I come through the woods like a freight train. I wreck everything. Um, and I do it on, I don't care because I, I don't usually hunt the same spot more than, I, I may hunt a stand three times throughout a year. And if I did, it would be once early, once mid, and once it's late season December. But you'll never see me in the same stand inside of a month. And uh, so because of that, like when I come down a tree, I'm, I'm loud, I'm noisy, I'm, I could be talking on a cell phone for all I care. It doesn't matter because I'm not coming back to that spot anyway. Um, so I don't worry too much about that. But where routes matter to me is if I'm... If I'm looking at it, I'm going, hey, tonight these deer, I'll bet they're all bedded on this island. And because of the way the wind is, they're going to come off this island and come across this point right here. Knowing that, then I do have to pay attention to what way I'm going to access in there so that I have opportunity at them before they get to where my scent trail is. And also so that I can actually scout it as I'm coming in without screwing myself up and getting busted by leaving a scent trail and also how I can get in there without them busting me wherever they're bedded at. So, you know, I, I got to determine what my limits are and where I can be. So that's stuff that I'm trying to figure out when I'm up there and I'm trying to determine where I'm going. Same thing for in the morning. If I'm sitting in that sleeping bag or if I'm doing it here in Michigan and I'm at home looking at Google Earth and I'm going, okay, tomorrow morning, the wind's going this way. I've never been to this spot. I want to head out there and hit that. I am then looking at what my route's going to be and I will come in that route. I don't have it pre-marked. I haven't mapped it. And as funny as that is, I'm not going to lie. I, I, I have invented swear words that have never been invented when you try to walk <laughs> through the swamp in the morning. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I have been soaked to the bone where I have literally no joke, but in October trying to get in there that I kept saying, oh, I can make it. I can make it. I have been so wet that the, for the first, you know, three hours on a tree stand, I'm actually not wearing pants at all because they're just soaked and I have them just hanging to dry because it's just, they're, they're just miserable, you know? Um, so yeah, 
yeah, it, it can be an adventure, especially the tree stand on your back. You're snagging on everything. Every branch is holding you back. You gotta you, For every step you take forward, you got to take two steps back and twist three different directions to get another step forward, you know? So it can be a headache. It, there's no doubt about it. It can definitely be a nightmare. But when you start doing this enough, you start anticipating where those spots are. You can see them on Google Earth. You can know that, oh my God, that's going to be a nightmare. And you give yourself extra time because you know it's going to be a kick in the butt. You know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, but it, it is, I, I love it. I love the adventure and I love sitting somewhere new. Every stand site, you, Nick, will know this especially, in Michigan, especially up here where I hunt, our, our deer are so overhunted here that... Um, they're just small and bucks are very few and far between. We have like a one, uh, our buck to doe ratio in my area is like one to 27. You have like 27 does per buck here. It's, it's horrible in this particular area. So, and that's actually kind of funny, uh, Jason, because, uh, the, the two times that I've hunted, and again, it's, it's not in the same area that you're, that you're hunting in, um, we hunt, we hunt an area near, near, uh, Hastings or have the last couple of years. And this past year, I think I only saw two does uh, in the three days that we hunted, but I saw, uh, I want to say it was four different bucks. And the, the year before that, the first deer I saw in Michigan was an absolute monster 10 point. Um, but he, he came in on that, that 80% side that I was talking about earlier and was downwind of right. and he winded me before I got a chance to shoot. But, um, so, uh, Jason, I'm going to interrupt our chat for a few minutes to introduce a new component uh, to the podcast. And lucky you, you get to be uh, on the first episode that's going to include this. Now, we're calling this section Passing Down Traditions. And it's something um, where we're going to try to start including in each episode uh, going forward to focus on a topic that in some way has an impact or the potential to have impact on the future of an outdoor tradition or a pastime, uh, something that we feel any Anyone listening to this podcast should care about. Uh, so it could be uh, news related to protecting public land or public waters access, or it might be about some new legislation that uh, we feel folks should be aware of, or it could be as simple as a tip or a suggestion on how to get a kid or kids interested in an outdoor activity and hopefully away from the TV or Xbox for just a little while. And we may also take just a few minutes to promote or discuss an organization or an individual that's uh, working to protect outdoor traditions for future generations. So you good with that? Yep. All right, then let's jump right in. This week on Passing Down Traditions, I want to take uh, a few minutes to bring to your attention a situation currently playing out in West Virginia, where it appears a group of anti-hunters is putting pressure on the state to halt a DNR-sanctioned hunt from taking place um, on the Chief Logan State Park area. Now, this is a managed hunt. It's used to control deer populations. And just this week, the governor of West Virginia uh, stepped in and put a halt to the hunt pending a request that the DNR perform, and I quote, further study on the scheduled hunt and report back to him. Now, the governor went on to say that while he is an avid outdoorsman, he wants to be sure that the DNR has looked at every facet of this hunt and that they gather all the facts and scientific research and then present this information back to him for his consideration. The governor also added, and I quote, we want to make a decision that balances the interests of all sides. Now, 
Personally, I just don't care for the way that sounds myself. So I invite anyone listening to uh, email or call the governor's office of West Virginia and tell them that you support the DNR's plan for this hunt, and more importantly, that you support the hunters in the state of West Virginia. Now, before you think, well, I don't live in West Virginia, or I don't plan to hunt in that state, so this really doesn't pertain to me, Well, honestly, I believe it does. Uh, Not only could it set a precedent for something like this taking place in your state, but also, and perhaps more importantly, if it were happening in your state, would you not want or appreciate hunters everywhere stepping up and and supporting you? I know I would. So uh, take a moment to head over to the the Traditional Outdoors website. That's at www.traditionaloutdoors.com and look for the article related to the hunt on the Chief Logan State Park area in West Virginia. And inside that article, you'll find links on how to contact the West Virginia governor's office and let them know how uh, and where you stand on this matter. Now, I first learned of this uh, situation on the Sportsman's Alliance website. And if you've not heard of the Sportsman's Alliance, I highly recommend you check out their website at www.sportsmansalliance.org. They've been working to protect the rights of hunters and trappers since 1977. And personally, I check their website pretty much on a daily basis for new information just like this. Um, And lastly, uh, this week, I would like to take just a moment to talk about a recent accomplishment uh, that I've made that I'm pretty proud of. Um, This week, I actually finalized my life membership with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Um, Now, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is an organization that I'm passionate about supporting. Um, BHA is the premier organization when it comes to protecting our public lands and public waters access. And if you've never heard of BHA, then I uh, invite you to check them out on their website at www.backcountryhunters.org. And I highly recommend that you join. Uh, the cost for membership is just $25 for a year. Uh, with that, you'll get decals and some swag. You'll also get four issues of the Backcountry Journal uh, magazine. And it's pretty amazing in itself. And in my opinion, it's pretty much worth the the price of membership. But then there are also uh, life membership packages like I took advantage of, uh, and there's several of those to choose from, and each one includes some pretty amazing gear for anyone that spends time in the outdoors. Uh, They have everything from hunting to fishing, kayaking, camping. Uh, There's just something there for everyone, and uh, they'll even let you pay for that life membership uh, through an installment plan for up to 12 months at no additional charge. That's what I did, and I'm glad I did. So check out backcountryhunters.org and help BHA keep public lands in public hands. Now back to our discussion with Jason Samkowiak. So you're, you you were talking about your 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 path in, um, and and plea. Pro- so I I go about it a little bit differently, and I just I'm gonna I'm gonna throw some things out there at you, uh, Jason, and and. I would like to hear your thoughts on it. So, again, most of what most of what I hunt um, here in my home state is it's hill country. It's um, just shy of being mountains. In fact, in you know, I can drive for forty five minutes. I can be in in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Um, but I have over the past couple of years. So, some of the things that I've actually started really doing, and I, I I do it pretty religiously, both for areas that I have hunted in the past and for going in blind is between Google Earth and, and Cal Topo. Uh, I do use a GPS quite a bit. Um, I don't rely as much on my phone for various reasons. I, I tend to trust the GPS a little bit more. 
but I will actually go in and, and pre-program my routes, um, either on Google Earth or sometimes in Kaltapo based on terrain. So I may look for if there's a satellite I'm going to hunt or a, a ridge that I want to get to, I may approach that by by going through a valley. Um, and there's there, the reasons behind that one is the valley is typically going to be easier to, to get to the top, meaning you're not having to try to straddle a ridge and, and keep from slack going, you know, uh, working your way off the ridge. The valley's easier to follow. I figure in the mornings as the air is still cool, it's going to keep my, my scent down in that valley um, as opposed to being up on the ridges where it could, uh, in my mind, could spread further. Um, the other thing that I'll do is if I've got a, a waterway such as a creek or so forth, sometimes I'll actually use that as a, as a path to navigate at least to a certain point. And again, my thought there is the water keeps my scent down. Potentially, it could be a little bit quieter. Um, but I, I definitely have a method kind of behind the madness, especially if I'm going in blind as to how I'm going to approach the stand location. And I do it, I can do it without a light. I can do it completely dark based on that, that GPS. Have, have you ever tried that or just didn't like it or just not something you've ever wanted to put the time into? Well, if it's a spot that I've, I've already pre-scouted, you know, that I know about, then yeah, I'm going to try and come in a certain way because I've been there before. But when I'm talking, when I say blind, I mean a, sp- a place that I've never, ever stepped foot in before. I've never actually been to that spot in my life. Um, you know, and I'm basing it strictly off of what I'm seeing on a map. Because, like, if you look at Missouri and Kansas and Ohio, I'm there for six days. And, and I'm not one of those guys that comes in and wants to scout everything for four days and hunt for two. You know, so I'm, I'm coming in and hitting the ground running with the intention of finding a perfect spot to set up in. So for that, like I said, never having been there before, as far as planning my routes in and out, I am looking for, I'm trying to walk through places where I don't expect deer to be at the time. So I don't want to, I'm not walking through a, a food source, you know, um, in the morning on my way in, knowing that they might be in there in the dark, still eating, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. Uh, so I'm planning my routes that way. The creeks are good, but the downside to a lot of the places I'm having is the waterways here, they're major travel corridors, you know? Um, so they travel these, these waterways and things like that here. There's always massive trails right on the edges of the rivers, um, things like that. So I tend to avoid them, uh, and try and, so, um, this may sound crazy, but to give you an example, if it's a morning spot and I'm planning on hunting and I'm coming in and I'm going to come in close to a bedding area, if I'm expecting them to be out eating in, say, these this oak area that's uh, maybe a quarter mile away, and I'm going to come in and hunt them and I want to catch them right next to their bedding area, I will actually, I would rather come through, I'll come right through the bedding area. I'll crash right through it because I don't care because I'm only hunting it once, but I will come directly through the middle of their bedding area and then pop out the other side and then set up right there, you know, um, because I know they're not in that bedding sure. area. And I'm hoping when they get to that bedding area, they're coming by me and I'm killing them already. Okay. And that, and that, that, that does make sense. Um, and when I say I should, I should add to that, when I say I pre-program a route, the, the route on the GPS for me is more of a, uh, more of a guide. It's not something I try to place my footsteps exactly on it. It's when I get there and if I'm going in blind, obviously there may be obstacles that I can't see through Google earth. Um, and and I may I may have to veer off that that pre-programmed route, but it still keeps me fairly 
fairly close and fairly honest. And I mean, I've actually picked out trees in Google Earth and and pretty much walked straight to them. So, um, but I, I can see your point too, and I know what you're getting at. You you avoid the areas where you think the the, the deer are going to be at 4 a.m. And obviously, they're, the chances they're going to be in their in their daytime bed at that time of the day is is almost none. Right. And I think we're doing the same exact thing. When you say you got a pre-programmed route, I think I'm kind of doing the same thing. So when I'm looking at Google Earth and I'm picking that spot, I'm mentally saying, okay, here's how I'm going to come into it. But I'm not like jotting it down. I don't have it bright eyed. I'm not, you know, I haven't, you know, it's not like I'm following a breadcrumb trail into it right, or I'm marking right. waypoints there, but I, I'm, I'm telling myself, okay, I got to go around this bog here to here, cut through these pines, go across this, cross the river right at this low spot, pop up on the other side walk around this ridge drop in and then hit it you know so i'm doing the same thing i just don't think i'm marking it so uh, kind of a follow-up question there you did say you kept your e-trex and you you use your phone uh as you're out doing your your pre-scouting um and i've got a a reason i'm asking this and i'm gonna come back with a follow-up but do you do you keep waypoints uh, in your in your phone or in your gps as you're out scouting just places of interest maybe it's um, you know, a, a multi-section, multi-intersection uh, of, of trails or, you know, maybe it's a, a, a food tr- feed tree, anything like that. Do you mark any of those or write them in a log or keep a mental note or anything like that? Or are you really just saying, nope, I'm, I've looked at everything and this is the spot I want to set up and nothing else matters? Oh, no, I'm, I'm with you. I, I carry a GPS with me all the time. Again, because a lot of places I hunt here, I don't have cell service. So even when I'm out scouting, I don't use a GPS for navigation, but I'm using it for exactly what you say. I'm using it to lock waypoints in. And uh, I do it religiously. So, And the funny part is, even if I'm on my way, say I got a stand site that's three quarters of a mile in and I'm trying to get to... Uh, you know, even if I'm hunting, not just scouting, but if I, my intention is to go to that spot and hunt it, if I'm on my way in there and all of a sudden I come across a, a rock solid spot that I think is gold right there, I'm shooting straight up a tree right there. I might only, and, and the funny part is sometimes that might be 30 yards off the road. You know, I might literally (laughs) park my truck and then see this sign and literally go, you know what, I'm going to hunt right here, but I need to go move my truck, you know, because I can't have my truck within shooting range of where I am, but I'm hunting here. So yeah, I'm, I'm marking these spots constantly. Uh, but what I do is my GPS is, is I load spots in there. I, I don't name them. I don't do anything. I just hit the button and it marks it number 24 or number 100, whatever it is. And, uh, when I'm finding sign and then immediately, Sometime within the next day or two, I try to not wait too long. I come home, I pull it up on Google Earth, I look at it, understand why, what, and how, figure it out. And if it's a spot that I'm going to use as a hunt, I will then take the the uh, you know the coordinates for that thing and I will plug it into what three words, create a screenshot of it on Google Earth, and I on that screenshot I'm writing the what three words location and a Latin lawn location, and then I'm actually naming that stand site, and then I'm actually saving that. That is an image with the name of it. So if I call it, uh, you know, Big Oak next to, uh, you know, Riverbend, uh, you know, I'll name it that. And then right before hunting season, I will load all these pictures right on my phone. So when I'm sitting in a stand, I can see every single stand site. So if I got, usually I come into each year with about 30 or 40 preset. I, I may have not hunted them. You know, obviously I, I haven't probably hunted them, but I, I at least know where they are and I know I've scouted them and I they're going to be good spots. So I'll have those 30 or 40 of those preset in there. 
and uh, and I'm I'll go in and you know I can say hey the wind's going to be perfect for this I've never been there yet this year I want to check that spot out I'll head in and check it if it's good I set up and hunt if not I move on to another one or I just start scouting from there going blind and just figure out an area in there that I like further down you know so the 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 little follow up to that was. Um and I'm assuming you've probably done this. It's a, it, it's kind of funny to me and really uh, at listening to some of the things that, that you've talked about on both the, the, the latest DVD set and the original DVD set, as well as watching some of the things that Dan Infault has talked about. There was a lot of things that I started picking up years ago by doing the same thing that really didn't resonate until I started really paying attention to things that other people were saying. But like, if you, if, if I go out and spend a day and I have actually done this before, I'll spend a day just roaming the woods, scouting, but really just enjoying myself being outdoors. And I'm, I'm, you know, I keep a log, a journal with me and I'm, I'm writing down notes and I'm taking waypoints and then I'll get home and I'll pull these things into my computer and load them up on Cal Topo, especially sometimes on Google earth, but really more of Cal Topo. And the pattern that gets created by those spots that I create just jumps out at you, especially things like uh, the contour lines and the the where you'll actually set waypoints and how many times it'll be right on a, a major contour line in hill country is spooky. <laughs> it's really right. kind of cool to see. And it's usually a third of the way down on the leeward side. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, I, have you? I guess you've noticed that as well, or do you even look at things like that anymore? I, my number, that is my number one hill country, or hill country hunting style is I, I, I only pay attention to that third or, you know, somewhere about that third line, um, or give or take, you know, 50, hundred yards either way of it, somewhere between half and, you know, third of the way from the top. And it's always on the leeward side. So when I, again, uh, Missouri, the, the, when I'm hunting those hill country places, I'm there as a vacation hunt. So it's not like I can pre-scout them. So when I'm sitting in my sleeping bag in my wall tent, I'm going, okay, the wind tomorrow is coming out of the, it's coming out of the West. So I need to be looking at the East side of every single Ridge, pick out what I want, figure it out. But that's, you know, I'm figuring all that into there. So yeah, I hunt the leeward side somewhere in the third line. That's pretty much my main way. And then I'm looking for funnels along there. See, headers are my favorite. I'm a mass. I, I, again, probably because I'm still pretty, pretty green when it comes to hunting hill country and don't get to spend as much time there just a couple weeks every year. I look for the obvious. Mm-hmm. So I'm usually looking for, um, you know, I'm looking for headers, creek headers and things like that, or, you know, where the washes are nasty, something is going to funnel them on that third side or on that third line of that, uh, that leeward side is going to make them come up to me. You know, that's what I've been doing is focusing on those kind of things. And, and points. I think you've mentioned that several times. Um, yep. and, and I, I do know you were talking about saddles, which used to be one of my favorite, um, topographical features to set up on and hunt. And I'll be honest in the last few years, I've really gotten away from them. Um, mainly because there, it, it can be a bit sporadic with regards to, where the animals may cross inside of a saddle. So, I mean, you, uh, and maybe that's just here, but a lot of the saddles we have may be, they may be 80 yards long. So, you right. know, it, no matter where you set up, you've got a, a 30% chance that anything that walks through is going to be out of range. Um, so I, 
I use a, I use saddles. The way I'm using them is I'm using more of an intersection point. I, I have a really hard time, and that's how you have to hunt hill country, is you're hunting directional deer. And that's really hard for me as somebody who likes to find hubs and in, in intersections. You know, I, I never set up, even in flat ground, like I never set up in a funnel. Even in, in you know... In, in private land and crop areas, I'm never setting up in the middle of a funnel. I'm setting up at the end of a funnel so that the deer coming out of that funnel have to come by me, but I also get the transline deer on the other side, you know? Um, so I like intersections and hubs. And so how I use saddles is if I'm hunting a ridge side and I got a lot of points on there and I know that there's going to be a lot of bedding and deer are going to be coming in here, I'm trying to be on that same contour line where that where I'm expecting them to travel that third line wherever it's got good cover they're going to come through on a leeward side but if I have a saddle in that ridge and I can set up close to that saddle that that saddle gives me one more option of deer that may want to cross over there to come into that bedding side or a buck that's already cruising that bedding side in those points may want to pop over to the other side for something so I'm using the saddle more as an intersection secondary rather than as a major understood yeah, gotcha. So back, backing out a little bit, uh, Jason, obviously wind is a huge factor when planning standard blind location. Do you pre-plan for thermals? It's a tricky one because if you're hunting on the third, if you're hunting on a leeward side, you're, you know, if it's tricky because if it's a cloudy day and there's not much thermal activity, um, then I'm usually going to try to be downhill a little bit if they're not too bad. I mean, keep in mind, I only carry three sticks, so it gets a little tricky. Uh, but if you're you, on a day that's a sunny day and the thermal activity is really strong, where it's really rolling up that hill good, and then you got the prevailing wind coming over the other side, it creates that wind tunnel that Dan Infault talks about. And uh, that wind tunnel right there, you can you can you know when you're in it because you can see it with your milkweed. If you guys aren't using milkweed, definitely do it. If you don't have it, call me. Because actually, matter of fact, uh, Tom Jurgensen sent me last year. He sent me like five film or ten film canisters uh, for those, which was awesome. He sent them to me but I have a ton of milkweed. So if you guys need some, let me know. I'll hook you up with it if you don't have it in your area. But milkweed will let you know what that wind's doing. And when you hit that wind tunnel, that milkweed's going to just start rolling and going back and forth and all over there, and you know you're in the right spot. If it's got real strong wind directions coming from both ways, I actually prefer to set up right in it. Now, if you're a compound shooter, I would recommend going uphill so that you can get up above it and a prevailing wind can get you out there enough that you're not going to probably get busted because uh, most of the deer are coming, uh, you know, they're they're paralleling that, that hill. So you know they're not coming, most of the time they're not coming from below you right up at you. So having that prevailing wind and being above them is a good thing. For a traditional bow hunter, the problem there is we can't be 25, 30 yards away from that zone so I prefer to set up right in it. So I, I mean, if there is, if there is four trails that come through there, um, or if it's a, say it's a header, it's a header and it wipes down and then all the trails merge into like one or two trails in a 10 yard area, I am setting up like literally right on top of them. And uh, I'm doing that for two reasons. One of them is because I don't know if it's the thermals that's going to bust me or I don't know if it's the prevailing wind that's going to bust me, but I'm expecting that something could nail me. Uh, and then what it, the other advantage of being right in it is 
that usually, especially bucks, they're not, they don't, you know, a lot of the little bucks and a lot of the does, uh, they'll blow right out. As soon as they smell you, they just turn tail and they book right out of there and they're gone. And, uh, but the bigger bucks, they don't make a decision without thinking about it first. So they'll stop and they'll analyze and they'll figure it out. And then they want to make a, they want to verify and they want to make a perfect decision. And when that happens, usually if I'm right on that, right in the middle of those trails or right on top of them, a lot of times that decision will be made when they're standing there at 18 yards facing to me from either direction. But when they go to make that turn and try to figure out what they gonna, they're going to do, they're going to open up for me and give me a shot. So it turns for me being right in the middle of it, right in that wind tunnel, I get a choice of them. If they do make it by me or make it to me, I get a broadside shot or quartering away when they pass by me. If they don't and they wind bust me, usually while they're trying to make a decision, they're still within range of me to be able to get a shot when they're trying to make the decision they want. So it turns uh, just a parallel option of them having to come past me to give me a shot into one where I can actually shoot them even if they're facing me when they turn to change their mind because they winded me. It's a weird scenario, but uh, again, because as somebody who likes my shot distance to be under 15 yards, under 20 for sure. Um, you know, I mean, I can count on one hand how many deer I've killed past 20 yards and I've killed, you know, over a hundred deer and it, most of them are, are inside of 15. So looking for that range, setting right in that wind tunnel has been my that best effect. And that's, that's a real good point too, Jason, is <clears throat> as far as the bucks, I've, I've seen the same thing. Those don't hesitate. They're just, they're out of there. But a lot of times, uh, I think, and I think as much as the, the thinking about what they're going to do, bucks are just more uh, stealthy. They, if they can, if he can turn and sneak out of there and think you never knew he was there, that's what he wants to do rather than throw the flag and crash out of there. Just my thought. Yep. Dan Rudman said a comment to me two years ago when I was in Kansas and it, he said when he said it it stuck in my head like you nailed it in there and it's probably been one of the most priceless pieces of advice I've ever got on hunting big deer uh, and not that I kill a ton of big deer but I get opportunities at them a lot I miss a lot I've killed a few you know but uh um, you know but his advice from somebody who's I I, I want to say he's got 12 15 18 p and y's I mean he kills a lot of big deer and uh, he says that the thing you got to remember about a big deer, a big, big deer, is he wants to walk where he's rubbing stuff all the time. Not rubbing with his antlers, but he wants to feel vegetation against his body constantly. And, uh, man, that has, that has stuck, you know, and then you, when he said that, I started, you know, systematically remembering backwards and thinking about all the big deer I seen and where they were and trying to picture the locations and that has made a tremendous thing. So when I'm looking at these, you know, when I'm out, you know, that's one of the things I was saying earlier when I forgot about it, but here in Michigan, I, where I'm at, I don't get a lot of big deer here. We don't, you know, I can hunt a whole season, only see three or four bucks here and they're, they're not real big. Now I can drive an hour from here and be into really good deer. And I can drive two hours from here and to be into P and Ys and whoppers and but I'm dealing with people running lawnmowers and things like that and you know private ground and or little tracks of public and it's it's different. But when I go out to these other states, you know, the, the quality of deer, the quality of bucks are out there are incredible. Every single year that I'm in either Ohio, Missouri, or Kansas, I am seeing at least one hundred and twenty-five or hundred and thirty inch deer every single time, at least one. And uh when you watch what they're doing. 
that tip that Dan said, it's almost, it's unfailing. If there is an opportunity for them to, to walk through a place, if you have a 50 yard wide area and somewhere in that 50 yard wide area, there is a strip of something that is a little thicker than everything else. Odds are that that big buck is going to walk through that where he can feel that. So you use that. That's something to think about. You're right. These they're they're not dumb. They're educated. Their their experience level is off the chart, and they know how to do all those little tricks and little things that they can do. It's almost like they understand it. If they walk through there, there's limited opportunity for an arrow to get in it. You yep. know yep. Uh, that kind of stuff. It's just it's it's so interesting to see what they're capable of. And and Jason, I. Obviously, we're, you know, we're talking to you about your DVDs, but um, we have mentioned Dan Infault a couple of times. For anyone that that has never heard of Dan Infault, um, The Hunting Beast, uh, look it up on YouTube. And the only thing I say about that is the the wind tunnel thing is definitely something, if if you don't understand what we're talking about, uh, Infault does a great job of explaining that that whole wind tunnel scenario and even shows the the, uh, examples of it with the um, with the milkweed. So I would highly recommend people check that out. Um, the, the, the other follow-up question I'm going to have on, on the, the thermal question though, um, Jason, have you ever, do you ever consider things like, um, mainly it's water, but do you ever consider things like streams or bodies of water, um, with regards to thermals and using those to your advantage? I know you hunt in a lot of swamp area and I don't know that that really counts like a, a running stream would or a, a larger body of water but does it ever factor into your your thinking it does now especially since uh like you said dan infault and you're right on that on a little side tangent if you don't own dan infault's videos you need to buy them um i mean you his skill on getting onto big deer is is unmatched on any kind of level and he does it on public land and uh he lays it out perfect for you and he's really good at teaching it and he's he's phenomenal like i said you you should you should own every video for whatever area you hunt and also check out the hunting beast and his uh you know the forum and his youtube channel cuz he puts a lot of great free stuff out there and uh but now Dan actually taught me about uh, thermal uh, water thermals and I didn't know what they were but I've been busted by them a few times and where I make sure to pay attention to them isn't uh, it, it's it's not so much creeks that I worry about them or, or things like that but it's uh, it's swamps okay because if you're in a swamp you got dark water uh, murky bottoms well what happens is the sun heats that up that sun is absorbed by that blackness all day long and heats it and then when the air cools at night you have still hot water right there the the temperature of the water stays warm because of all that absorbed heat and then it creates a vacuum and it'll actually if you're within 20 25 yards of that water source that swamp it's going to suck your scent right out to the water and so and in my experience so does uh and i don't like to well I don't like to hunt in uh, or near streams for a couple of reasons. One, the noise, obviously. Um, two, typically you're in a lower area, which makes thermals really um, bad. But um, if I can get close enough to a major crossing and actually use that that cold water from the stream, and again, you got to remember, I'm here in Georgia, where, as Nick will tell you, it can be it can be 80 degrees in November. Um, but that cold water will also have the effect of pulling your your scent away, um, uh, and you can even feel it at times. If you're if you're sitting there in a still day, you can feel the wind pulling with that 
that the direction that that stream is going. At least that's been my experience. So, um, but just wondered if you factored that in. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I do. I try to pay attention to it whenever I can. I mean, it's weird and this will sound crazy, but I plan for it. Like my normal head out, if I'm heading into a place blind in the morning that I've never been to before, I'm usually leaving pretty early. I'm giving myself a, a lot of time because of the fact that it's not uncommon for me to stand there and say, okay, this is exactly where I want to hunt. So I'm, I'm literally going, I want to be within 10 yards of where I'm standing right now. It can take me 40 minutes to determine what tree I'm going up based on shooting lanes, based on which ones, if a deer comes here, I can hit him there. If he comes through here, I can get him there. If they cut this, I'll get him there. If they do this, I can't hit him from this tree, but I could hit him from that tree. But if I'm in that tree, I can't do this. You know, all this problem solving, trial and error, analyzing what the wind's going to do. Okay. Well, if they come through early, the wind is going to be fine because it's going to be doing this. But then once the sun hits, the thermals are going to do this and this is going to be a problem. You know, it's, it's constant uh, why and how and problem solving. And like I said, it can be 45 minutes of me standing there with all my stuff still on my back with my feet not moving, just looking at the tops of trees, trying to figure out what I want to hmm. do. Gotcha. So do you maintain a log to track wind patterns or prevailing winds in certain locations or stand sites? I mean, obviously not the ones you go in blind or if you're doing that a lot, but otherwise? No, I'm telling you, honestly, I'm really bad at that too. Cause, and I've, this year I'm trying to make a better point of it on the places I did pre-scout, but I, you know, all my, I do 90% of my scouting from January 1st. Uh, well, actually I should rephrase that once the snow melts, usually in March. So March, April, until about, until the ferns come up middle of May, that's 90% of my scouting for the next year is picking spots then. Cause all the sign under has been, you know, frozen under snow and preserved from the fall. So I do that. But, uh, my biggest problem I have is it seems like every single year when I start compound or compounding everything I found and start making my maps and putting it together is like, I'll have, I'll have like 35 places for a West wind and only like two for an East wind and one for a North wind. It's like, really? How did I not pay attention to this? You know, why? what was I thinking? So I'm really bad at that. So I don't track them. I don't pattern them. I don't, I, you know, I don't even really honestly remember what prevailing wind direction is here because it does change a little bit here. I think it's southwest. I think it's coming out of the southwest majority during, uh, during October, which is when I do most of my hunting here. But it, it varies, and then I know it moves for December, and I'm not here much in November. So, um, But I just try to make sure, you know, if I find a good spot, I'm just figuring out how I'm going to hunt it. Now, most spots I find are good for at least two directions because uh, I am coming in mobile, so I'm running my – it's not like I'm hanging a stand. So I'm looking at it going, I can hunt it this way for this wind, and I can hunt it this way for this wind. And I'm actually marking that on my actual, you know, chart when I make that picture of that map for what ways the wind is going to be best. And I, I, I do it a little bit differently, which I think freaked Nick out a little bit. I mean, we may have even mentioned this on the podcast before. So I, that's the one thing that I document probably um, more consistently than anything else is I will actually, if I'm scouting, if I'm hunting, I will make a note of what the forecasted wind is for that day. Um, and then I'll actually take a, a, a reading once I'm at my hunting location or if I'm scouting when I'm, as I'm walking through scouting and I'll compare what I, what's realized versus what was forecasted. And, you know, over time, it's really kind of scary how predictable it will be. In fact, the, the first time Nick hunted with me, 
Um, I would tell him, give him directions, which that's a whole nother story because obviously <laughs> he, do, he doesn't like my backwoods directions on how to find a <laughs> hunting location. But I would tell him now, when you get there, if you face east then the wind's going to be blowing so and so and he would give me the weirdest look and then by the end of the week he was like how how do you know that and i said well I, I i i journal it i keep track of it so in the mornings i'll, I'll listen to what the forecast wind's going to be and i can pretty much guess um what direction the wind's going to be blowing taking in the without trying to study the terrain and figure out what the terrain's going to do if you just capture it over time it's pretty predictable um because the terrain doesn't change so it's going to it's going to cause that wind to do a certain thing not considering thermals and what the effect those had just just wind directions actually very predictable yeah he's he right yeah he's, he's a nerd like that uh and one, one of the things i saw jason <laughs> that i appreciate appreciated in your video is that when you uh when you you actually pointed out several logging roads and uh they were actual logging roads <laughs> as opposed to a normal michigan yeah. trail <laughs> like steve uh, yeah. <laughs> in georgia where i spent i spent 25 minutes trying to find a road a legit road and it was and it was a cycle trail <laughs> here's the right here's here's so here's the difference so in Michigan, the, the the logging roads that I saw you mentioned, Jason, were fairly recent. They were in clear cuts, or they get used a lot after they're made after the logging roads for for two tracks for snowmobiles. Correct. Yeah, we don't have snowmobile snowmobiles here, and the areas that I was talking to to Nick about and saying, look for the logging road. It's full grown stands of timber now, so these logging roads are. 40 or 50 years old but you can still see them well, well i can still see them i don't think nick could no but. i walked until i found a huge clearing and i figured that was the logging road looking for a big operation <laughs> with a bunch of with a bunch of red paint which, all right, over trees which, and that's what i see in michigan <laughs> which right. which he later found out was prime nesting locations for chiggers yeah, but, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, <laughs> yeah we, we can we can talk about that another day <laughs> Adventure. <laughs> well, yeah. Jason, Nick, any have anything else you wanted to? to no, just that I'm gonna. I think I need to go and uh, watch some more of that DVD, and I'll be I'll be contacting you, Jason, if I have any questions. That's for sure. And uh, I uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm learning. Like I said, I'm I'm really learning a lot. Um, or learn a lot from it. And it's and it's it's a great it's a great collection of information. Um, the only other thing I was going to ask you, you know, there is one more thing, Steve. Um, so sure. why did you decide to do this as a DVD and, and not like YouTube or something? Or is like a, do you have plan on having well, a channel at some point or? Well, well, I do. I actually have a YouTube channel. It's uh it's TBW podcast on oh. YouTube. And I think I got about 110, 115 videos on there. Um, but, uh, but it, you know, I, I'm, I'm not really good at the whole, uh, internet thing too well. I wasn't. And so it's not like I promoted it very heavy. It's there. Um, but, uh, and it's got stuff on it. You know, I got a couple of videos that got like 350,000 views, but then most of them are more like in the thousand, you know, they're, it's not real super popular, you know? Uh, but I do put a lot of great things on there. The reason I did the DVDs this way is, uh, I wanted it to be something that a, a lot of people, especially in the traditional bow hunting world, a lot of these people are not really interested in 
uh, YouTube or they're not interested in a podcast. If I had a nickel for every time somebody would call me and say, hey, I, uh, I'm trying to watch your podcast and I, I'll, all I do is hear your voice. <laughs> you know, you're not showing me nothing. You know? <laughs> it's like, well, that's what you get. You know, it's uh, so they're, they're, they don't understand a lot of that. So I figured, you know what, a DVD format would be better. And also, as you guys are aware, you know, this podcasting stuff, it cost me about a hundred and something bucks a uh-huh. month is what it cost me. I've been doing it for five years and, uh, and I don't take any sponsors or anything like that. Um, you know, I don't ask for money or anything. And I thought, well, you know, two years ago or whatever it was, when I put that DVD out, I was like, man, this is starting to add up. Plus at the time I was paying like 300 bucks a year to advertise on trad gang to get it out there a little bit, things like that. And I'm looking at it going, you know what, this is kicking my butt this is getting to be you know we're, we're talking almost two grand a year and i've been at this for three you know with three years at a time i'm going man i'm, I'm starting to spend some money i'd like to recoup it so i thought a dvd yeah, it starts would to be feel a bit like it. a non-profit doesn't it like you're just doing a civil your civic duty to get information out there so people can kill deer <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and you know, and it, and it's the thing that, that's the thing that pisses me off when you get somebody that's, uh, you know, they'll, they'll send me an email and they'll say, Hey, your audio quality is not good. You ought to try doing this in a studio or something. It's like, I want to jump right through that screen and tell them if you had any idea, because if I had to do this in a studio, it wouldn't happen. And, you know, it's, it's one of those kind of deals, you know, but, uh, but you keep looking at it going, I'm helping people. I'm hoping I'm helping people. And, you know, as you guys find too, you are, people love this stuff and they gain a lot. You, you sleep well at night knowing that, you know, it, during hunting season, you're constantly getting pictures from people that have, oh my God, I did what you said. One of the, one of the tips I gave in a podcast, probably three or four years ago, I said, if you're hunting, a, if you're a field edge hunter on a crop field, instead of trying to sneak your way out there when there's deer in that field, instead start talking, screaming, yelling, get down, skip and talk on your cell phone and make a ton of noise and walk your way out of there right down that field. Don't go through the woods. Do it. Let the deer watch you do it. And they will not be alarmed. And uh, people, I got so many people, you bumped your head. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. And then they try it and they're going, oh my God, I killed this 10 point. It was amazing. You know, it, it, it's because of the fact that, you know, you, you're doing something that they're not. But when you when you, you know, when you see people have these, the results that they have based on the stuff that you're trying to help them with or the information you're giving them and they're appreciative for it, it makes it all worthwhile. But at the end of the day, it's still a tremendous amount of money any way you cut it. And so for me, the DVD was a way to go, this is, if I put all of this information there, not only does it solve it for the people that don't want to use YouTube and the people that don't use the podcast or know what it is, it gives them everything in one spot. And it does give me enough money to recoup some of my losses for uh, my expenses on doing this and let me keep doing it for longer. So that was the well, whole concept. Sometimes it's nice to have something tangible in your hand. Like I've been working on this book for over a year now. And, and it's one of those things that's like this is this is everything I've been working for. You know, you put it and you've got, you've got it in a nice little package that you can share with people. And, you know, I, I, I was going to do it on just Kindle and I had a number of people tell me, you know, I want something in my hand. And I think that means something to people. Um, and, you know, I got a funny story for you just real quick. Tom, I, w- when did you do the first video, Jason? When, when was that first DVD? Okay, two years two ago. Years that makes ago. sense. So Tom Jorgensen gave me the DVD and said, yep. you need to watch this. And I was like, okay. 
Like a year later, he came up to me because Todd doesn't want to press. You know, he's really polite. Uh, and he goes, hey, did you watch that DVD? And I was about to answer. And he goes, no, you didn't. Because if you did, you would have texted me and said, this is the most mind-blowing thing I've ever seen. And I think I'm going to be a new hunter and a better hunter now. And oh, by the way, I just shot a buck. Kind of like uh, a lefty yeah, crab DVD. Yeah, it was like I huh? seem to collect things and just put them in drawers and don't... <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> no, it That's was really, awesome. really funny. And I've got and, and I've got to throw in a gratuitous Escanaba in the moonlight reference and just say, you know, Albert uh, Alfonso Sodi used to say anything freeze worth saving up for. So, you know, you got that going for you too. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yep, yep. I love that movie. Got to get to yep, the two holes. That's my that's my go to get ready for the season movie. But I'm hoping I got a story for you this year, Jason. So I and I will be the you'll be one of the first to know. So. Yep, well, and have fun with it, man. That's the key. I think too many people get too caught up in, I mean, it's, you know, they, they chase that, you know, they, they want the deer. They want the horns. They want the, they want, they just want to get it done. But I, there's, if I could go back and have, it took me three years to kill my first year with a traditional bow. I shot over the back of 12 of them. Um, I had a hard time. It was, it was a chore to make it happen with a traditional bow. But those first three years were by far the best time I ever spent in the woods, hands down. Educationally, experiment-wise, adventure, it was just priceless on every level. So enjoy the journey of this, man. That's, that's what it's all about. I mean, you get to a point now where even now it's, you know, I, I, I don't actually, I care that I'm killing deer because of the fact that I want to fill my freezer. That's my number one priority. Heck, I just paid $800 for a half a cow. I mean, that's ridiculous. You know, I'd much rather, you know, you know, eat venison instead. So filling a freezer is my number one priority. And the other stuff is fun, but I, I you just, the adventure of being out there, the, the going to new places. I mean, it's at the point now where if I could go, hmm, I could go to my honey hole spot here and kill a deer, or I could go to this place I've never been, but I don't think it's going to be that good. I'm probably going to the place that I don't think is going to be that good just because it's new and different and I want to experience it. So, you know, you just, just have fun with it. It's supposed to be fun. If you kill something great, if you don't realize that you become that much better than you were before and you had a lot of fun doing it and you get to keep doing it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. No, absolutely. I, I'll enjoy awesome. it. Yep. Awesome stuff, Jason. Well, Jason, I think we're going to have to, we're going to have to wrap this one up. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you um, joining us, how much uh, both Nick and I appreciate the, the uh, kind words that you've, you've put out on your podcast about what we're doing here at traditional outdoors. You know, we can't thank you enough. Um, so we, we do really, we really appreciate it all. I appreciate you having me. And, and I appreciate what you guys are doing out there. Um, you know, there is, the traditional podcasting is getting to be a little more popular now, which is, is so good. You know, I mean, it's so nice to have more people in it. And uh, in the diversity of what you guys are putting out, the content, the quality of the guests, it's phenomenal. You guys have come out of the gate really strong and you're running hard and you're doing it for the right reasons and people are loving it. I mean, I'm hearing from people say all the time how much they're loving your show and it's just, it's good and how they're learning and this from you and uh that kind of stuff i even had one guy tell me i need to start fly fishing so i can do a fly fishing podcast <laughs> there you go <laughs> like yeah no <laughs> just, but uh you know like i said they're they're eating your stuff up they're loving it and it's good and i you know i'm right here with you i know the amount of time that's required for this i know the dedication the discipline and the you know uh, you know the sacrifice you make to get this information out there and how the behind the scenes stuff works and it's not easy and uh you know so i speak 
like for everybody, every traditional bow hunter out there, when I tell you, keep it up. You're doing an incredible job and, and we love it. Thank well, you. Thank you, sir. We, we greatly appreciate that. You're welcome. And for everyone else, um, be sure to check out Jason's podcast. If you haven't already traditional bow hunting and wilderness podcast, um, and more importantly, um, really check out his DVDs. They're, they're amazing. Um, and you can get those directly from his website, tbwpodcast.com. Uh, if you just, if you already have the first DVD and you want to buy the, the second set, that's $29 shipped to, uh, lower 48. If you have not gotten the first two and you want to buy all four, um, Jason, I think you still have a special out there right now where they can buy all four DVDs, 16 hours of information packed video for 50 bucks shipped, um, to lower 48. You just can't beat that. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, there's two DVDs, the first one and the second one. They're each two DVD sets. So there's, yeah, if you, for 50 bucks, you get four DVDs and, uh, yeah, it's eight hours total content. So, I mean, it would be, I'll be in your face for way too long if you watch them back to back. You'll actually probably start throwing things at me, you know, but, uh, but yeah, you get <laughs> both. Or if you, if you never had the first one either and you, you want just the first one, you know, like I said, that one you can get for 29 bucks too. So I got them all still here. Awesome. Well, Jason, thank you so much. Um, take care of yourself. Best of luck on your, uh, on your bear hunt. We'll be looking for, uh, updates either on social media or, you know, shoot us a text or an email or something to let us know how things are going. And, and I will be catching up with you real soon. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. I appreciate it guys.